Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This one was originally broadcast back on August the 27th in 2018. Hope you enjoy. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Let's go. Come on in. This is Bob Bro. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the Old Time Radio Show, the podcast where we we play old time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. And let me tell you, <laughs> I'm in St. Louis and it is hot today. We had a beautiful week last week, didn't we, Chester? It was gorgeous. Just gorgeous. I mean, it was uh, almost all week. It was in the 70s. Uh, Some mornings we got up, it was in the 60s. It was just gorgeous. I don't think it ever got over 80, 81 degrees, no humidity, and man, are we paying for it now. The heat index out there right now is about 105. I mean, the sun is beating down and it is humid. Welcome to Missouri in August. But that's all right. We've got a cool show, don't we, Chester? Very cool. Chester just gave me a thumbs up. We have for you tonight, we have an episode of The Six Shooter, which has been requested. Then we're going to follow that up with an episode from The Great Gildersleeve, the show we haven't played before. And we have an episode of Gunsmoke we've never played before. So we have a great lineup. We have a great show. And all you have to do is come on in out of the heat, cool off. We've got some uh, cold drinks over there. Pull up a lounge. Pull up uh, a chaise there. You can uh, pull up the ottoman, put your feet up. Make yourselves at home because we're going to get started in just a minute.
I've been getting requests for more westerns, and one of uh, one of our listeners wrote me a very specific note and said, "We need more Jimmy Stewart westerns." Well, that means the Six Shooter, because that was the series that he did in the early '50s. And you know what? He was right. We should have more because this was just an outstanding show, really an outstanding western. And the episode we have tonight is、uh, very typical of that. This is not a shoot 'em up story. This is a story that kind of tugs at you emotionally. And Jimmy Stewart is so good at the aw shucks, the stammering that he does. You know, typical Jimmy Stewart stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's so good. At this. And this one has really good sound quality. This one was originally broadcast on the 3rd of January back in 1954. Here is Jimmy Stewart in the Six Shooter, and the name of this episode is A Friend in Need, and it's a good one. James Stewart as the Six Shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett. The Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still remembered legends. Fifty Yard Canyon—that's what folks called it. Probably there was another name, more official, written down on a map in the territorial capital. But the people around Smoke Falls, they just called it Fifty Yard Canyon. You see, it, it was only fifty yards wide, someplace even narrower, but it was close to thirty-five miles long. And riding through it was sort of like riding between two giant slabs of granite, all polished and smooth, the way a gravestone is fixed up. Except that these slabs were close to half a mile high. Well, anyway, that's what we were coming into, Scar and me, following the trail east to Smoke Falls. We were just getting on toward daybreak, and the sky was kind of a oatmeal gray, heavy, wet, waiting for the sun to come up to stir some life into it. We rounded a sharp bend, and Scar flared his nostrils and slowed down to a walk. And what's the matter, boy? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Canyon got a little wider up ahead, and the sides angled up somewhat gentler than usual. I saw some clumps of trees and some mesquite, but it was still too dark to see anything real plain. I got off Scar as fast as I could dive out of the saddle. What the Sam Hill? Now, who in the thunder are you shooting at? I ain't particular, Mister. Well, I 
Sam! I couldn't make him out. He was just a shadow partway up the canyon wall, maybe 30, 40 feet. His gunfire gave me a pretty good notion where to aim. For a couple of minutes, everything was real quiet. I didn't stand to reason that I'd hit him with that shot. I hadn't. I inched my way across the floor of the canyon. I started up the side. The bullet necked a rock right about a foot left of my face. I... Uh, he knew where I was, all right. But then I had a pretty good notion of his whereabouts, too. Yeah. Well, a man's entitled to a lucky hit every once in a while. If he wasn't faking that yell. It seemed like there was only one way to find out. All right. All right, drop it. Come on, drop it. Okay. The okay. pistol slid out of his hand. His shirt sleeve was stained pink at the elbow. Twisted around, gave me a squint. Just then the sun swung up over the top of the canyon, spilled over the sides... I... Why... Art. Hey. Art Hamper. Who'd you think you were? Holy mackerel, Brit. Well, I'll be doggone. You're just about the last person in the world I have expect to bump into out here. Yeah, well, you sure were expecting to bump into something. Yeah. What's the trouble, Art? Who are you gunning for? Somebody's gunning for me. Huh? Clyde's dead, Brit. Clyde? What? He was shot yesterday morning. Shot in the back. Well, I... What, you, you know who did it? I know who the sheriff says did it. Me. What, he, he thinks you killed your own brother? Stepbrother. Clyde and me weren't real kin. But we was as close as if we did have the same blood. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of blood, Art, that elbow of yours... Your... Oh, bullet only grazed me. I'll, I'll tie my bandana around it. No, you better let me give you a hand. Here, I'll... Where'd the sheriff get the idea you had something to do with Clyde's being shot? Well, it's kind of a roundabout story. You see, Pa died a couple of months ago. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm oh, sure. Yeah, well, that ought to take care of your arm for the time being. Thanks. Well, in his will, Pa left things equal. Half to me and half to Clyde. Uh-huh. Folks got the idea that him being my father and not Clyde's, well... They thought I was kind of put out by Clyde's getting the same as me. But you weren't. Oh, of course not, Britt. I didn't have no complaint. Clyde was as close to Pa as I ever was. He was entitled to just as much. Uh-huh. Well, how did Clyde happen to get shot, Art? That's what I don't know. I just don't. I'd give anything in the world if I did. Well, you, you said yesterday... That... Well, in the morning, about 7 o'clock, I was in the barn hitching up the buckboard. I heard somebody at the pump outside. I figured it was Clyde drawing a bucket of water, and then I heard the gun go off. I started for the door, but before I could get there, Clyde stumbled into the barn. He was holding on to his belly, and he fell forward into my arms. That's where he died, Brid, in my arms. He didn't say anything? Oh, he tried to talk, but the words just wouldn't come out. He tried to tell me who shot him, but just couldn't. I'll find out, though, Red. Someday I'll find out and I'll get even. I'll, I'll take it easy, Art. Instead of blaming me, why ain't Sheriff Vale looking for the guilty man? Why ain't he going after the real killer? 
Well, you're sure the sheriff does blame you? Well, he arrested me yesterday afternoon. Oh, I see. Had to take me into town, but I gave him the slip. Rode up into the canyon here. Oh, well, now, you shouldn't have done that, Art. If you're innocent, you'll get a chance to prove it. Running away, that just makes you look guilty. How could I prove anything dangling from the branch of a tree? What, what are you talking about? I was going to lynch me. George Crump and Sam Bitley and the other fellows were the sheriff, and he wasn't going to do nothing to stop him. He said hanging was better than I deserved. You don't know Sheriff Belbridge. No, no, he must be new to smoke for. Well, he don't believe in wasting time with trials and juries. I wouldn't be the first man Bales let the boys take care of. I see. That's why I had to get away. Oh, I knew I couldn't run too far before they'd catch up with me out here in this canyon. Well, you are kind of boxed in. Yeah, but I figured a day or so and the fellas had cooled down, listen to reason. Maybe they'd even pick up the real killer's trail by then. Uh-huh. I thought you was one of Vale's posse when I heard your horse. That's the reason I fired. I wasn't aiming to kill anybody, understand, Britt? Just, I was just hoping to scare you off. Uh-huh. Well, even so, it sort of seems like to me you stand a good chance of making things worse for yourself the way you've been acting. You, oh, I'm not saying that a man has to sit tight and let himself get lynched, but uh, it just, oh, well, I... Well, what do you think I ought to do, Britt? Well, I'm... I don't know. I, well, I'm, I'm riding into Smoke Falls. Uh, we could ride along together. If you give yourself up, that ought to be something in your favor. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I guess you're right. My horse is starting to go lame. I, I couldn't go much further anyhow, but to uh, tell you the truth, Britt, I'm, I'm scared. You're scared? Well, they had a rope. George Crump was carrying it with the sheriff arrested me. And the way the fellas looked, their eyes half closed and their faces red, sort of like they had a fever. I ain't never been a coward, Britt, but I was scared. Well, like you said, they'd probably cool off by now. Well, if there was some way I could just be sure. Britt, maybe if you was to talk to them first. Talk to them? Well, before I give myself up, they must be following me. You're bound to run into them on your way into town. Well, I suppose so. Well, they'd listen to you. They respect you and they'd have to listen. Even Sheriff Vale must have heard about the six-shooter. You could tell him that I never had nothing against Clyde. You, you knew he was always friendly, even when we was kids. Sure, sure. I well, if, if you'd make the sheriff understand and the boys with him, well, then I'd feel better about going back into town. Britt, you ride on ahead. They can't be more than, than an hour or so away. Tell them, tell them I'll give myself up. Tell them to wait for me at, at Squirrel Rock. You know where that is, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, uh, tell, tell them, uh, I'll meet them there at noon. I, I, I don't know, Art. This, you don't this... think I'd run out on you, Britt? You don't think I'd do a thing like that? No, 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 but I... Well, I... all right, then, Squirrel Rock at noon. That'll give my pony time to rest up. Uh, well, well, Afterwards, I... I'll, uh, well, after I'm all straightened out with the sheriff, we'll, f- well, we'll find out who killed Clyde. You'll help me find out, won't you? I'll help if I can, Art. Thanks, Britt. Oh, uh, there's, uh, uh... Just one thing, though. Yeah. Now, suppose I don't meet up with the posse. Well, you couldn't very well miss them here in the canyon. Oh, no, maybe they've turned around. Maybe they've gone back. Well, in any case, I'll be at Squirrel Rock at noon. If the posse ain't there, you wait for me just the same. I'll go into Smoke Falls with you. All right, Art. All right. I guess you know what you're doing. All right. I'll be seeing you. Thank you.
was about 10 o'clock in the morning when I passed Squirrel Rock. Not much later when I met up with the posse. Wasn't much of a posse, though, just three men. Well, on the lead, gave his pinto the spur and trot up ahead of the other two. He's a good-sized man, big bone, solid, with a tangle of red hair and splotches of freckles across his face. And the way he wore his revolvers and rested his hand against the butt of one of them, well, you could tell who he was, too. Even if you didn't happen to notice the star on his vest. Harry. Morning. I'm Sheriff Vale from Smoke Falls. Yeah, I've been expecting to run into you, Sheriff. Oh? My name's Ponsett. Britt Ponsett? He sure is. Well, how are you, Britt? What are you doing around here? Oh, I'm just passing through, George. Hey, Sheriff, ain't you never met up with the six-shooter? No, can't say as I have. Heard about him, though. And uh, this here is uh, Sam Bitley, Britt. Oh, yeah. Howdy. Hey, you said something about expecting us, Ponsett. Yeah, uh... Art Hemper thought you'd be heading up this canyon. Hemper? What were you... You mean you ran into Art, Britt? Early this morning. Oh, doggone it. That's who we're looking for. Yeah, he told me. Did he tell you why? Sure. Yeah, his brother was killed yesterday. You want him for murder. And you knew all that? You just let him go scot-free? Oh, what'd you expect me to do? You could have brought him in, saved us the trouble. I'm not a part of your posse, Sheriff. Besides, Art willing to give himself up. Give himself up. He says he didn't have anything to do with Clyde's death. The only reason he ran off was because you were talking about lynching him. Say, Britt, how you gone loco? You didn't actually believe him, Ponson. Well, I... I've known Art for a good many years, Sheriff. Well, looks like we know him a little better than you do. Yeah, I saw it, Britt. The whole thing with my own eyes. I saw the murder. Now, now, hold on, George. Now, you didn't see it. I tell you, I saw it. I was riding past the Hemper Ranch, and Clyde and Art were out behind the barn. They didn't notice me. They were too busy arguing and shouting. Then Clyde turned and started to walk towards the house. Well, Art pulled out his gun and shot him in the back. Clyde didn't even have a chance to draw well, what, is that the truth, George? As true as anything in this world. Well, I, I swung around, and I headed into town to get the sheriff. And that's when Art spotted me. He got off a couple of shots, but I was out of range. Well, the story he told me is entirely different. Well, that shouldn't surprise you too much, Ponce. No. no. No, I guess not. What happened when you arrested him, Sheriff? Well, we didn't arrest him. No, we didn't. Why do you think we're out here looking for him? I see. Well, he took off before I could bring the sheriff back. We picked up his trail and followed him into the canyon here. And as for anybody trying to lynch him, well, there'll be no lynch law in Smoke Falls while I'm sheriff. Well, that's good, sheriff. Yes, sir. And besides, ain't no need in his case. Any jury in the territory will convict him on the evidence. Why, of course. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sure sounds that way, doesn't it? Well, I... Doggone, I, I just don't know what to say, Sheriff. Well, you want to blame for believing Art? You were a friend of his. <laughs> Before he changed. You went around to see how mean he's got the last few months. Always picking on Clyde and making life miserable for him. As if it was Clyde's fault the old man left him everything. Everything? Well, sure. Ranch, cattle, the whole shebang. The whole shebang. Yes, sir. I guess Jake Hemper knew Art wasn't any good underneath. Guess that's why he picked Clyde to inherit, even though he wasn't a blood relative. Well, you got to admit, there's one thing Art's good at. Huh? Lying. 
The way he fooled Britt Ponson, he must be a pretty convincing liar. <laughs> well, you'll have to give him that much. Uh, huh. Won't you, Britt? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give him that much. We'll continue with James Stewart as the six-shooter in a moment, because I'd like to answer a question that so many of you have written in to ask. It's about our theme music on the show, and believe me, we like it too. It's called Highland Lament, but I'm sorry to say there's no way for you to obtain it to play in your own home. You see, all of our music has been recorded for broadcast only, and it simply isn't available in any form at your music store. But thanks for writing anyway. Your good letters are tremendously appreciated by all of us. Incidentally, while Jimmy Stewart is kept pretty busy with the six-shooter and his motion picture work, one of his happiest activities is keeping up with his twin daughters, Judy and Kelly, at home. There's a nice picture story of the Stewarts and their twins in the current issue of McCall's Magazine. of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. Well, there wasn't anything else I could do but just tell Sheriff Vale the whole cock and bull story just the way Art had given it to me. I felt like crawling in a prairie dog hole. Oh, not just because Art had made a fool of me. It's more than that. We'd been pretty good friends once, all three of us. Art, Clyde, and me. Now Clyde was dead, and sooner or later Art would be brought in for killing him. If I wasn't so doggone gullible, it might have been a lot sooner. Well, Rock, eh? It's only three or four miles. You must come by it. Yeah. That's where he said he'd give himself up. Oh, is that so? Well, if he told you to wait for him there, you can be darn sure it's the last place he'll be. He's probably still up at the end of the canyon, trying to find the pass you come through. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, sure. Well, we better ride on ahead. You want to come with us, Ponsett? No. No, I think I'll head back for town. Well, suit yourself. I left a couple of the boys along the way in case Hemper gives us a slip and starts backtracking. Uh, you might tell him to keep the eyes open, that we haven't caught him yet. Yeah. All right, sure. Okay, George. Sam, come on, let's go. Come on, boy. Well, that's what I intended to do. Just head straight for Smoke Falls, but somehow I found myself turning around. I, I took it real easy, and then when I came to Squirrel Rock, I couldn't help pulling up. Whoa, boy. Whoa. Whoa, Scott. Whoa. But just about noon, the sun was square in the middle of the sky. There sure wasn't any sign of Art Hamper either. Not that I really thought he'd be there, not after what I'd found out from the sheriff. I... I'd never looked at that rock real close before. It was a lot bigger than most of the other boulders along the way, but that was about the only difference. I couldn't figure why folks got the name. It sure didn't look much like a squirrel to me. It's big, though. Well, any doubt about that, I... If it had been a couple of feet wider, it had blocked the whole canyon. I, and I remember thinking to myself, a man could hide almost anywhere around there real easy. The only trouble was I didn't think of it soon enough. 
right on time, Britt. Yeah. Yeah, so are you, Art. You don't mind getting off your horse, do you? Well, as a matter of fact, I just as soon not. Well, you better do it anyway. Keep those arms stretched way up high. Uh-huh. All right. Now, you can unbuckle your gun belt, but uh, use only one hand, your left one. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I guess you know I ran into Sheriff Vale. Sure. I told you you would. Him and his boys come riding through here just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Didn't even stop, huh? I must have figured I was up at the end of the canyon hunting the pass you come through. Yeah. Art, uh, George Crump says he saw you shoot Clyde. Did, huh? Well, I didn't pick a very good time for it, did I? You're not going to deny it again, huh? <laughs> you wouldn't believe me if I did. I already pressed my luck with you once today, Britt. I won't try it twice. Why'd you kill him, Art? It wasn't Clyde's fault your father left him the property? Ranch wasn't the real reason. I guess folks never will believe me, but uh, that wasn't the cause. Well, what was the cause, then? I can't even put it in words. I, I reckon I hated Clyde. I reckon I always hated him, but I didn't know how much until... Until they read the will, until I found out how Pa really felt towards me. You see, I never had no mother. She died when I was born. Oh. It wasn't very long after that Pa married again and I had me a ready-made family. Oh, she wasn't like one of them stepmothers you read about in stories. She always tried to be fair and honest. Maybe that was it. Maybe she tried to be too fair. Yeah, too fair. Well, whenever I did something bad... Never said a word to me. She waited till Pa come home and told him about it. I was his son, she said, and she didn't have no right to punish me. It was up to Pa to take down the razor strop and give me a whaling. Not that she was easy on Clyde. She wasn't. She saw to it that he, he told the lion. But he belonged to her. He was her responsibility. He got plenty of whippings, too, but uh, it was her that give it to him. I guess it don't sound very sensible, Britt, but... Those times when I used to wish she'd care enough about me to, well, just slap me or give my ears a good boxing. But she never did. I was Pa's son. Oh, you couldn't blame Clyde for the way his mother acted toward you. Oh, I didn't blame him. I didn't blame him. Not at first. I told myself we were even Stephen. He had a ma and I had a pa. I was fair enough. And whatever happened, I was Art Hemper. Britt, he wasn't even entitled to the same name, not by any rights. Once I asked Pa about that, I asked him why Clyde was calling himself Hemper. Real good tannin. That's the answer I got. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was. All the time I was growing up, all the time until she died. I was kind of happy when it happened. I thought maybe now it'd be me and Pa again. I thought her being out of the way would sort of push Clyde to one side. Uh, things didn't work out like I figured Clyde and Pa, they mourned together. They seemed to be closer than before. So I told myself all I had to do was wait. I was Pa's son. Everybody knows when a man dies, it's his son that inherits. All I had to do was to wait. And then it did die. And I found out I'd been living my whole life on lies. I'd convinced myself that when the chips were down, Clyde wouldn't matter anymore. 
Pod realized I was his son, his only son. And then the day they read his will, I knew that I hadn't had a ma and I hadn't had a pa either. Clyde had had them both all the time. So I had to kill him. Maybe if he was dead, things would be different. Art. Just stay where you are, Ponzi. Now listen, Art. Now listen to me. I think I understand what you're trying to tell me. Some of it, anyhow. And maybe you weren't exactly responsible for what you did to Clyde, but you've got to give yourself up. Give myself up? For the first time in my life, I've got a reason for living. There's nobody standing in my way, nothing more. There's a posse standing in your way. They've passed us now. They've gone up the canyon. I can ride out the Smoke Falls Gap without them even knowing it. Sheriff Vale's no fool, Art. He figured you might slip by him. That's why he left some men behind. Well, they won't stop us, Britt. Us? Sure. You're taking me in town. I'm your prisoner. Of course, this gun of yours won't be loaded, but nobody's going to know that. And nobody's going to know I'm holding my own gun just inside my shirt. That Nicky give me on the elbow is going to come in real handy. All right, Britt. Here's a six-shooter. Not that it'll be much use to you now. Art brought his pony up from behind the rock, and we started down the trail. In a way, I felt kind of sorry for him. But that, that didn't justify what he'd done. That didn't justify him getting loose and killing somebody else, maybe. We were getting close to the mouth of the canyon now, and the trail kind of straightened out. I figured we ought to meet up with one of the sheriff's boys somewhere along about here. Be their last chance of stopping Art before we hit the flat country. I guess Art was figuring the same thing. Hold your gun on me, Britt, like you were serious. All right, all right. Don't try anything fancy. We rode out for about five minutes more, and then I spotted him. Fellow leaning against the side of the canyon with a carbine across his arm. He must have been dozing, but when he heard us, he came awake fast, and the carbine swung around ready for business. All right, hold up there. So you got him, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I got him. Who are you, mister? I didn't see you with the posse. My name's Ponson, Britt Ponson. Oh, sure, sure, the six-shooter. Did he give you any trouble, Mr. Ponson? No, not so far. Well, where's the sheriff? Uh, he's back a ways. He'll be coming along. Well, maybe you ought to wait up here. We can all ride into town together. Well, the sheriff said Ponsett was to go on ahead. Oh? That's so, Mr. Ponsett? Yeah. Yeah, that's what he said. Well, I guess you can take care of him. You ain't gonna need no help. Not with that gun of yours. I hear it's about the fastest shooting six-gun ever been turned out. Yeah. Say, uh, maybe you'd like to take a look at it. Wait a minute. Here, catch. Are you crazy, Mr. Ponce, throwing your gun around like that? Why, if I wasn't covering Art there... But you are covering him. Huh? Really, I told you. Look out, I was already diving for the ground. Art fired through his shirt. The bullet slid across the back of Scar's neck. Art didn't get a second chance. The carbine slugs tore into his chest and knocked him off his heart. He just lay there. He was bleeding bad. Bridge. Yeah? There. 
there's something I got to tell you. All right, go ahead. Sorry I lied to you this morning. A man shouldn't lie. That's what my pa always said. And you were my best friend. Shouldn't have lied to you especially. Well. Besides, it didn't do me no good. It just goes to show you that lying don't pay. Pa used to whip me whenever I lied. I should have known better, Brett. I... I should have known that. Well, if that don't take the cake. What? Not more than a minute ago, he tried to shoot you down. But now all he said was, he was sorry he lied to you. What happens to a man like that, Mr. Ponce? Oh, I don't know. I just don't know. The Six Shooter is a transcribed NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and it's written by him. Mr. Stewart may soon be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Shepard Mencken, Bill Johnstone, Frank Gerstle, and Howard McNear. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. This is Hal Gibney speaking. This is the NBC Radio Network. That was uh, The Six Shooter. name of that episode was A Friend in Need. Originally broadcast January the 3rd back in 1954. Such a good show. It was only on for one year, 39 episodes. Some have said that it was the last... Uh, the last hurrah, well, not the last hurrah, what a, the last effort by Hollywood to keep interest in radio by adding a big Hollywood star in the starring role of the show. And, and maybe that was true. Uh, let me just see. I have some notes here about the six shooter. Frank Burt created it. He wrote a number of the episodes. Like I said, it lasted one season, the 53 through 1954 season. On NBC, it came on Sunday nights. That moved around a little bit, but for the most part, it stayed on Sunday nights. James Stewart, of course, starred as Britt Ponsett, who was a drifting cowboy in the final years of the Wild West's West. Uh, episodes ranged from straight Western drama to whimsical comedy. I agree with that. A trademark of the show was, this is good, a trademark of the show was Stewart's use of the whispered narration during tense scenes. Yeah, that created a, created a heightened sense of drama. That was, that was classic of this show. 
a lot of great Hollywood actors, but most of most of the radio actors from from Hollywood uh, appeared on the show. The, the list I have here says Parley Bear, Virginia Gregg, Harry Bartell, Howard McNear, Jeanette Nolan, Dan O'Herlihy, Alan Reed, Marvin Miller, and even William Conrad. Um, but because he was also the star of Gunsmoke at the time, whenever <laughs> whenever William Conrad was on the show, he often went by the name Julius Crailborn. Haunting theme, as you heard, was called Highland Lament. It was arranged by Basil Adlam, who was the uh, musical, uh, the series composer. Jack Johnstone was the producer director for NBC Radio in association with Review Productions. And I, I've got some other notes on uh, Six Shooter. We'll play more episodes in the weeks ahead, and we'll give you some more, some more background. <laughs> Nothing's quite as pretty As Mary in the morning When through a sleepy haze I see her lying there Soft as the rain That falls on summer flowers Warm as the sunlight Shining on her golden hair When I awake And see her there so close beside me I want to take Her in my arms The ache is there So deep inside me And nothing's quite as pretty As Mary in the morning Chasing a rainbow In her dream so far away And when she turns to touch it I kiss her face so softly Then my Mary wakes To love another day And Mary's there In sunny days or stormy weather She doesn't care Cause right or wrong The love we share We share together And nothing's quite as pretty as Mary in the evening Kissed by the shades of night And starlight on her hair And as we walk I hold her close beside me All our tomorrows For a lifetime we will share Perhaps love is like a resting place A shelter from the storm It exists to give you comfort It is there to keep you warm 
Perhaps love is like a window, perhaps an open door. It invites you to come closer. It wants to show you more. And even if you lose yourself and don't know what to do, the memory of love will see you through. Oh, love to some is like a cloud, to some is strong as steel. For some. Way of living, for some a way to feel, and some say love is holding on, and some say letting go. Some say love is everything, some say they don't know. Perhaps love is like the ocean, full of conflict, full of pain, like a fire when it's cold outside, or thunder when it rains. If I should live forever and all my dreams come true, my memories of love will be of you. And some say love is holding on, and some say letting go. Some say love. Some say they don't know. Perhaps love is like the mountains, full of conflict, full of change, like a fire when it's cold outside, or thunder when it rains. If I should live forever and all my dreams come true, my memories of love will be of you. We're very fortunate today. We're going to talk to one of the world's favorite heroes. We're going to talk to the Man of Steel, Superman. Of course, as you all know, <laughs> the Man of Steel is in reality Clark Kent. Do you mind if I call you Clark? Oh, uh, not at all. I'm mild mannered. <laughs> when did you first find out that you were Superman? Uh, when I was just a little boy. I uh, used to get ready for bed at night. I'd take off all my clothes and fly away. <laughs> Uh, I'd fly down to Cincinnati, St. Louis. Uh, one time I flew down to Dayton. Folks had to come down and get me. It took them two days by bus. Well, that's rough. Yeah. Could you tell us about one of your experiences in, in saving someone? Well, yes. Uh, one time I was up in a building and I saw a woman down on the sidewalk. She was uh -huh. uh, just about ready to get hit on the head with a big safe. Yo. So I jumped out of the 12-story window. Yeah, what happened? Well, I broke both my arms and my leg. <laughs> and I hurt my hip real bad. And uh, then there was this other time I saw a guy out in the Hudson River drowning. Yo. So I jumped off the old bridge, jumped uh -huh. in, got him, and just at that time, a steamboat was coming towards me. Yeah. I put up my hands, stopped uh -huh. that boat. See, what happened? I broke my other leg and uh, <laughs> re-hurt my hip and bruised my nose a lot. Perhaps you could uh, give us some uh, sample of your remarkable strength. Do you still have to retain that remarkable strength today? Oh, yeah, so? sure. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I could lift you up with one hand. Sure, yeah. Well, all right. Here, let me just... Okay. Uh, let me just... Let me just try and lift you. I'd... Go go right ahead. Now, let me just... <laughs> Wait a minute. Would it, would, would it help if I took off my shoes? No, that's all right. Just uh, leave me. I, I can get it. Don't worry. Don't, right. don't push me. I can... 
Could you take the change out of your pockets? <laughs> hey, uh, uh, well, I could have had forget, it, you know. Yeah, I know, but just all right. Uh, I was wondering, too, if you could still uh, fly. Well, yeah, but just on weekends around the living room. A bit. <laughs> take a little dip around the couch. <laughs> Tommy, how is Lois Lane? Uh, she broke up. Oh, you don't see her anymore? No, she broke up. Oh, I don't understand. Well, we used to have this little act. We'd uh, work out at fairs in the summertime, get a little extra money. I had yeah. a 200-foot tower, and she'd jump off it, and I'd catch her. And uh, this one summer, she jumped off, and I missed her, so she, <laughs> she broke, broke up. Yeah. Are you still able to do any of your remarkable tricks? Well, sure, yeah. I still have all my strength and everything. As, well, as a matter of fact, I've got a gun right here. If you'd like to uh, just kind of take a shot at me, it's only a 22, but uh, just... Point it right at my chest and uh, let me have it. Sure, just go right ahead. Just point it right at the old chest and I'll show you. Go ahead. Just shoot it. Go right ahead. Right, right in the center of your chest. Right. Mm. Uh, Superman? Uh, su Superman? Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. See, I got him right in the ass. <laughs> It was Tim Conway and Ernie Anderson with a uh, bit from one of their comedy albums from 1966. The name of the album is Are We On? And that was Superman. We'll have a little bit more from them uh, after the Comedy Corner. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> Okay, on the Comedy Corner this week, we are going to play an episode of The Great Gildersleeve, a show that we haven't played before. Now, for those of you that are old-time radio buffs, you're very familiar with The Great Gildersleeve because it was a show that ran for many, many years on NBC and really was considered one of the better radio shows. Well-written. It was a, a funny show. The only reason we haven't played it is because it, it really came before most of the shows that we choose. I've always tried to uh, play shows from the late 40s and the 50s, and the reason being these are shows that boomers oftentimes remember. The Great Gildersleeve actually went on the air way back in 1941, so it doesn't quite fit that category, but because it was on for so long, many of us remember The Great Gildersleeve, and we remember Hal Peary's very definitive laugh, as you'll hear in the show tonight. Gildersleeve was a spinoff of Fibber McGee and Molly. The story goes that Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve left the Gildersleeve Girdle Works in Wistful Vista and hopped a train to nearby Summerfield. There he was called on to manage the estate of his recently departed younger sister and her husband and to look after their children, Evelyn, who was later renamed Marjorie, and Leroy. Kraft Food signed on as the sponsor, and The Great Gildersleeve made its official debut on NBC Radio in August of 1941. Now, settling down in Summerfield, Gildy lived with his niece and nephew, Marjorie and Leroy, and eventually landed a job as the water commissioner in the city of Summerfield. Throckmorton soon became Summerfield's most prolific bachelor, 
He was on the prowl, it seems, for the course of the show, and he developed a bevy of girlfriends. Perhaps the best remembered of these uh, girlfriends was the syrupy southern belle named Leela Ransom, who always threw in a few extra syllables when she called him by his name, Throckmorton. But there were others. There was the school teacher by the name of Eve Goodwin. And then there was Leela's cousin, Adeline Devereaux. And then there was a nurse by the name of Catherine Milford, and I'm sure there were others. The great Gildersleeve differed from its parent show, Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The characters were more realistic, the storylines were more realistic, and the humor was just gentler. I don't know how else to put it. On Fibber, McGee, and Molly, let's face it, it was such a funny, great show, but it was more based on a vaudeville format. While each episode of uh, The Great Gildersleeve can be enjoyed as a standalone episode or understood on its own, it often developed extended storylines that sometimes lasted for weeks or even for an entire season. Okay, enough talk. Let's listen to this episode that was originally broadcast on NBC back on June the 2nd in 1946. The title is simply Meet Eve. And here it comes. The Kraft Foods Company presents The Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. It's The Great Gildersleeve, starring Harold Perry, brought to you by the Kraft Foods Company, makers of a complete line of famous quality food products. Good morning, Mr. Gildersleeve. Good morning, Bessie. A little late. Bring your book into my office, will you? I'm going to dictate some... What's this? Roses? Mm-hmm. For me? Uh-huh. Who from? Read the note. It's tied on there. Uh, Mr. Gildersleeve, congratulations and best wishes on your fourth anniversary as water commissioner. From Bessie. Well, now that's very nice. I hope you like them. Like them? I should say I do. <laughs> Bye, George. <laughs> Is it really four years? Four years today. Four years. You know, Bessie, if anyone had told me four years ago that I was going to be a water commissioner, I'd have said they were crazy. They would have been, too. How did you ever come to go into the water business, Mr. Gildersleeve? That's a fair question. Just fate, I guess, Bessie. Just fate. Fate. What a plumber. <laughs> you know, if things had been different, Bessie, I might have been a singer. Or even possibly an actor. <laughs> What's so funny? I've done acting in my time. Right here in Summerfield, too. Really? I can't imagine you. I mean... You can't imagine me what? I can't imagine you... Well, kissing people. Yeah. There are other things to acting besides kissing, Bessie. This part called for a very little kissing, as a matter of fact. Unfortunately. <laughs> it was something Marjorie got me into, my niece. She was mixed up with a little theater group here one year. A character named Bruce Fairfield was running it. I don't remember how I ever got sucked into it, but the first thing you know, they had me doing everything, including playing the leading role. Why, Mr. Gildersleeve... It Think I couldn't do it, do you? Well, that's what a lot of people thought. I'll never forget the time Mr. Peavy first got wind of it. <laughs> uh, sit down, Bessie. You'll love this. <clears throat> yes, sir? I'll never forget. I walked in there to Peavy's one morning and I had a... 
Good morning, Phoebe. Good morning, good morning, good morning. What have you got there, Mr. Gildersleeve? Got some posters. Just had them printed up. Gonna let you have one for your front window. Well, that's real nice. If I can get this darn string... There. I suppose you saw the story in this morning's papers. Story? No, I didn't. Why, it was on the front page. Well, I don't usually get to see the paper till evening. Mrs. Peavy likes to read The Lost and Found at breakfast. Uh, what was the story? That uh, tells all about it on the poster here. There you are. Hmm. The Little Theater in the Dell presents Cyrano de Bergerac, starring Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. That's right, Peavy. Well, I didn't know you had dramatic talent, Mr. Gildersleeve. I didn't know it myself till two days ago. <laughs> well, congratulations. Mrs. Peavy and I will have to try to get to that. Come one, come all, and bring your friends. Here, I'm going to leave you some tickets, too, Peavy, in case you can sell any. Well, I'll be glad to try. I'll leave you a dozen to start with. You'll find the prices printed on them, $1.10 and $1.65. Mm, those are mighty handsome tickets, Mr. Gildersleeve. You ought to be able to sell a lot of those. Well, anything you can do will be appreciated, Peavy. You know, it's so long since I've been to see a real live play. I, I used to go all the time as a younger man. You did? Every time Maxine Elliott came to town, I, I never missed. She was lovely, Mr. Gildersleeve. Lovely. Yes, I've heard she was. She was what you call a real beauty, Maxine Elliott. She was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a long time ago, Peavy. Thirty years, at least. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I, uh, well, I, I guess it is, though. Thirty years. <laughs> How time flies. She was lovely. You seem to have had quite a crush on her, Peavy. I would have married Maxine Elliott if she'd asked me. <laughs> of course, I was unmarried at the time, but I, I still think of her sometimes, even to this day. I think of Maxine Elliott, and then I look at Mrs. Peavy, and... Oh, well, we all have our points. famous actor. Oh, hello, Floyd. I guess you heard. Yeah, I read in the paper. Well, it be? Haircut? No, I'm on my way home. I just stopped in to leave you one of these posters. Oh, thanks. You don't think I need a haircut, do you, Floyd? Well, I got the judge coming in in a few minutes. Guess you'll keep a couple of days. <laughs> Mustache looks a little ragged, though. You might just give it a little trim. Oh, sure. Climb up in the chair there. Uh, well, we're having our first rehearsal this evening, Floyd. That's so? Say, so what kind of a play is this, Cyrano, Mr. Gildersleeve? It's a love story, Floyd. Greatest love story ever told on the stage. Oh? Say, um, guess those actors in those love scenes, guess they do plenty of schmoozing now, Mr. Gildersleeve? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Floyd. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> well, you still haven't told me what the play's about. Well, to tell the truth, I haven't had time to read it yet, Floyd. <laughs> Been so busy with getting the tickets printed and getting the posters out and one thing and another. Oh, here's the judge. Sorry, I'm a bit late, Floyd. Well, Romeo. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Be right with you, Judge. Just giving Mr. Gildersleeve's mustache a little trim. Trim it pretty, Floyd. Trim it pretty. He's a matinee idol now, you know. The old goat. Tell him to keep his remarks to himself, Floyd. Our friend seems to be getting a trifle temperamental these days, but I suppose you have to expect that of an actor. <laughs> Oh, uh, who's this Bruce Fairfield, Gildy? He's the director. 
Ever heard of this play they're doing, Judge? Mr. Gildersleeve tells me you don't even know what the play's about. I didn't say that, Floyd. I Cyrano? said I... Cyrano? Why, it's a classic. Every schoolchild knows Cyrano. And for all my joshing, it's a play that is really very well suited to our friend here. That's more like it, Judge. I can see why Mr. Fairfield chose Gildersleeve for the part. Well, that's funny. I never would have thought of me as the type. The story, Floyd, is about a man so homely. In fact... So repulsive in appearance that no woman would ever look at him. Oh! Oh, you mean like the Phantom of the Opera? Floyd, let me out of this chair. Yes, sir. Now, Gildy. Booker, is that true, what you just said? So help me, Gildy, that's the story of the play. Well, I'm going to do a little checking up. And if you're right... Yes? I'll kill that Bruce Fairfield. Eve, have you got a minute? Well, certainly. Come in. I can't. That is, I can't stay. I've got to get down to rehearsal. We're having our first reading of the play tonight. But before I go down there, there's one thing I want to know. What's that? That Bruce Fairfield. Is he trying to make a monkey out of me? Why? Because if he is, I'll punch him right in the nose. Well, goodness, whatever gave you that impression, Throckmorton? Well, this play he got me into, Eve, this Cyrano. I hear where it's about a fellow who's so ugly the women won't even look at him. Well, not ugly, exactly. It's just that he has a big nose. Enormous, in fact. Eve, do you think I have a big nose? Oh, no. But they'll change it to fit the part. You know, build it up with putty and makeup. Well, I don't know that I want to be going around with a big nose in front of a lot of people. Throckmorton, I'm afraid you haven't read the play. What do you mean, I haven't read it? I've got it right here with me, my only last night. Throckmorton. Well, I've been busy. (laughs) Well, perhaps I should explain, then, that without Cyrano's grotesque nose, there'd be no play. His disfigurement is the whole cause of the tragedy. Tragedy? Yes. You mean I die in the end? Of course, at the end of the fifth act. Well, I don't know that I like that so much. But all the great actors die. Hamlet, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, they all die in the end. All right, I'll die, then. No, it's a beautiful story, really. Cyrano is a soldier, one of the greatest swordsmen in France. And he's also a poet and very romantic. He has a comrade named Christian, and both of them are in love with a beautiful girl named Roxanne. Mm, Roxanne, eh? But here's the sad part. While Cyrano is ugly, even grotesque-looking, Christian is very handsome. I think I'd rather play the part of Christian. But Christian is really a very empty-headed young man. I don't care. Those fellows do all right. (laughs) Now, Throckmorton, wait till you hear the rest of the story. Christian is so stupid that when he makes love to Roxanne from beneath her balcony at night, he can't think of anything to say. So he persuades Cyrano to hide in the bushes and make romantic speeches to her. And Cyrano does it? He even writes Christian's love letters for him. And you think Christian is stupid? But don't you see, Cyrano is so aware of his own ugliness that he'd never dare to tell Roxanne of his love for her. The only way he can make love to her is through Christian, as it were. Oh. Well, that is kind of tough. It's tragic. Because it's Cyrano's voice, Cyrano's words, Cyrano's passion that wins Roxanne for Christian. Well, doesn't she ever catch on to this four-flusher? Well, that's just the point. Before she has a chance to find out that he's not the man she thought he was, he's killed in battle, dies a hero's death. And for years, she goes on believing 
that Christian was the great love of her life. While Cyrano, she just treats as a kind and amusing friend. Well, gosh, that doesn't seem very fair. Oh, but then there's the most wonderful scene. Have you the script there? Uh, yes, here. Thanks. There's the most wonderful scene where Cyrano is dying. He's been attacked by an assassin and he's dying. It's in a garden and he's alone with Roxanne. And here it is. Come, sit down here beside me, Throckmorton. And let's read it. Sure. You be Roxanne, huh? <laughs> you see... It's late in the afternoon, almost dusk, and the light is failing. And all through the scene, the autumn leaves are falling. It's very sad. Roxanne takes out a love letter that she's been carrying next to her heart all these years. The letter that was written to her as Christian lay dying on the battlefield long ago. She doesn't know it, but it was Cyrano who wrote the letter. And Cyrano takes it from her and reads it now. Read, Throckmorton. Huh? Oh. But you, Roxanne, I am dying. Dying tonight, my dear beloved. My heart is still full of love you've not heard. And I am dying. But how you read it, Cyrano. Never again will my eyes know the ecstasy of seeing you. I imagine those dear gestures that I love to watch. And I cry out to you. You are reading. I cry out at in you. In a voice. My dear, my dearest, my treasure, my love. Why, in a voice that I've heard before. My heart has never left you for a second. I am and always shall be, even in the other world, the one who loved you beyond all love. Cyrano, you cannot be reading now. The light is gone. And now for 14 years, you have been the good, kind friend coming to amuse me. Oh, Roxanne. Oh, Eve. Why, Throckmorton. I can't help it. It's so sad. There may have been better productions of Cyrano, although I never saw one. There never was one that had so many directors. What does a director do, Mr. Gildersleeve? Director? He just sits around and bosses everybody. He doesn't do anything, actually. Oh, just like in the movies. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But my trouble was I had so many amateur directors. Everybody around the house was telling me how to read my lines, including Bertie. Marjorie was busy rehearsing a play for the following week, but she wasn't too busy to put her two cents worth in. Here on page 12, Hunky. All right, try to remember. I doff my chapeau with an air, my mantle I toss to a lackey. I draw my bright sword from its sheath. Uh, I draw my bright sword from its sheath. Darn it. Start over again. Yes. I doff my chapeau with an air. What you doing, Aunt Rehearsing? <laughs> yes, Leroy, and I'll thank you not to interrupt my concentration. Okay. I can listen, can't I? If you'll be quiet. Oh, sure. I doff my chapeau with an air. Would you mind telling me what the story's about? Oh, for heaven's sake, Leroy. I've told you a thousand times it's about a man named Cyrano. In this scene, he's fighting a duel. Now be quiet. Okay. Are you going to do the fighting on the stage? Certainly. Mr. Fairfield showed me all about fencing. Bruce is a beautiful fencer. Yeah, one more lesson and I'll be able to cut his head off. 
<laughs> What's the jewel about, Unc? Uh, oh, well, this fellow insulted Cyrano. How? He, um, makes fun of Cyrano's nose. That's very funny. It's not very funny. Nothing funny about it. It's psychological. Cyrano thinks he has a big nose. He's uh, very sensitive about it. I don't get it. Why does Cyrano think he has a big nose? Because, uh, well, because he has. Leroy, I can't possibly learn this part if you're talking all the time. Why don't you go out and play? Nobody to play with. Well, call up Piggy and ask him to play with you. He has a cold. His mother won't let him out. Then call up somebody else. Only for heaven's sake, leave me alone. I'll call Piggy. All right. Now, let's see. <clears throat> I doff my chapeau with an air. My mantle I toss to a lackey. I draw my bright sword from its sheath. Hello, Piggy. This is Leroy. Hello, Piggy. <laughs> Hi, George. I might as well try to rehearse in a boiler factory. Can you come over, Pig? Gosh, Uncle Mort, I might as well be rehearsing my play. Oh, Marjorie, tonight's my dress rehearsal, and your play doesn't go on until next week. We can have lots of fun over here, Pig. Can't you sneak out? None of that, Leroy. I've got some difficult scenes, too, but nobody helps me. Let's do Cyrano, Marjorie. Did you hear Uncle Mort's going to be in a show, Pig? Yeah, he's going to be an actor. You better not let him hear you say that. <laughs> What did he say, Leroy? All right, do your old play. I'm going to rehearse mine. Fleetwood, there's something I must know. I've got I to know it. I simply can't go on. Yes, have you got any special desires for dinner? Dinner? Yes, Bertie. I want to have it somewhere far, far away. Oh, you mean you're going out? No, I'm just speaking figuratively. I don't know what the story's about exactly. A Cary Grant part? No, it's more like Jimmy Durante. Oh! <laughs> Leroy, terminate the conversation. But We'll have no chats. I doff my... Oh, if you only knew how I've lain awake night after night. Miss Marjorie, what's the matter with you? <laughs> night after night, my pillow was wet with tears. You poor child. I doff my chapeau with an air, my mantle I toss to a lackey. I draw my bright sword from its sheath. I think my uncle is wacky. Leroy! <laughs> No, 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 no. The fireplace goes over here. Cast, just relax for a moment, will you, till we get this set right. Uh, good evening, Fairfield. Oh, hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. Good evening, Bruce. Hello, kitten. Hello, everybody. Oh, hi, Mr. Well, all ready for the dress rehearsal? <laughs> I got my lines perfect now. Let's have some light here, shall we? Larry likes... <laughs> Would you mind moving that chair back a little, please? Uh, thank you. Now, oh, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, say, isn't this setting a little modern for Cyrano, Mr. Fairfield? I thought that's in my department, of course. I uh, wanted to talk to you about that old man. We're not going to be able to do Cyrano. We're not going to be able... What did you say, Fairfield? We can't do it. You see... Well, this is a fine time to tell everybody. The night before it's supposed to go on. I'm sorry, old man. It's just... Everybody me. in town expects me to appear tomorrow night. We've sold all these tickets. There are posters all over advertising me. That was your idea. If you hadn't rushed out and had them printed up... Listen, why can't we put on Cyrano? Why? Give me one good reason. Well, I don't feel that it's ready yet. What do you mean it's not ready? I know every line in the play. I've worked hard. I say it's simply not ready for production. I have my professional reputation to think of, you know. What about mine? I've been rehearsing for two weeks. I've told all my friends. And now, by George, I'm going to do it. Listen, you fat idiot. Whoop. If you think I ever, for one moment, intended to sully my professional reputation by allowing you to appear on any stage whatsoever under my direction... Whoop. So that's it. 
You've been just using me. Well, let me remind you, Fairfield, that I'm chairman of the finance committee for this theater. I I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Not a word of it. Forgive me. My nerves, you know. All these rehearsals, the strain. I could bite my tongue out. Well, go ahead. (laughs) Mr. Gildersleeve, if you'll only listen to me for a moment. No. Marjorie. Yes? Come here a moment, kitten. Ask your uncle to listen to me. I don't understand, Uncle Mark. What's going on? Well, this weasel... I'm merely suggesting... That we defer Cyrano until our second production. Oh? Huh? That's it. Cyrano will be our second production. Now, what I propose to do, with your uncle's permission, of course, is to put on Delicate Adventure tomorrow night. My play? We've been rehearsing it for a month. It's in much better shape than Cyrano. <laughs> what do you say, Mr. Gildersleeve? You knew you were going to do this all the time. Yeah, well, let me put it this way. It's a chance for Marjorie. She plays the lead. You don't want to stand in the way of an opportunity for her, now do you? Of course not, only... I'll tell you what. We'll find something for you to do in tomorrow's production. Oh, it will have to be something you can learn quickly, of course. Will you do it? Well, for Marjorie. Oh, Uncle Mort, you're a lamb. Yes, you're a lamb. I am not. (laughs) And don't you mind if your part is small. I know you'll be great. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Here we are, Leela. G, 10, and 12. Oh, my, these are lovely sea towers. Well, we don't want to miss any of Gildersleeve's artistry. Oh, Horace, hush. Here's a program. Can't tell the hams without a program. Horace. Mercy, Horace, what's this? The Little Theater in the Dell presents Delicate Adventures starring Bruce Fairfield. What? Say, we've been swindled. Floyd, did you see this? Well, I'll be done. Hey, look, Peeves, there's nothing about Gildersleeve. No Gildersleeve? No. Well, what's happened, Leroy? I thought your uncle was the big attraction tonight. Well, they switched at the last minute, but I'm just going to be in it. <coughs> Lower that backdrop. Okay. Little more. Yeah. Little more. That's right. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. How do I look, Marjorie? Just fine, Uncle Mort. How do I look? Just like an actress. I wouldn't know you. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it fun? It's horrible. Marjorie, don't go away. Why not? What's the matter? I'm nervous. I'm nervous as a bride. Oh, Uncle Mort, you can't be. I am. I'm not going to be able to remember a thing I've got to say. I just know it. Oh, you've got to. Hey, look, they're dimming the house lights. They're Uh, ready for you. uh, Marjorie, I can't. Ready with the curtain. All right, Mr. Gildersleeve. Now. (laughs) He... You'll be all right when you get out there. Well, here I go. Good luck. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, because of a local fire ordinance, I've been asked to request there be no smoking in the theater. I thank you. Hey, 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 They're your friends, evidently. Well, I'll do what I can, Fairfield. We want Gildersleeve. We want Cyrano. All right, folks. Quiet, please. Quiet, quiet. That's my fault. Here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, the management has just asked me to make a small... Announcement. You tell her, Mr. Gildersleeve. Uh, hi, Floyd. Hi. 
Owing to circumstances beyond our control, ladies and gentlemen, we were unable to uh, present Cyrano to Bergerac tonight, owing to uh, uh, circumstances beyond our control. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> Instead, we were forced at the last minute to substitute a very fine little production called uh, uh, Delicate something or other. Oh, we came to see Cyrano. Uh, oh, but we're going to give you Cyrano next time, ladies and gentlemen. Cyrano will positively be our second production. Give us a sample of it, Gildy. Yeah, give us a sample. A sample? Um, well, I, I don't know that I could do that. Ah, oh, come on. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll sing you a song. A song? Oh, do sing us a song. Uh, hello, Leela. Eh, <laughs> uh, conductor. Uh, you know, just, uh, uh, hmm? in the key of C. Fine. Well, do the best you can with it. This is the kind of song Cyrano might have sung to a lady if he didn't sing through his nose. In dreams I kiss your hand, madame, your dainty fingertips. And while in slumberland, madame, I'm begging for your lips. I fell down, Mr. Gillisleeve. <laughs> I haven't any right, madame, to do the things I do. Just when I hold you tight, madame, you'll vanish with the night, madame. In dreams I kiss your hand, madame, and pray my dreams. Come true. Give us another song, Mr. Gillespie. Another? Hey, something leaking. Oh, just a minute, folks. Mr. Fairfield, our director, something to say to me. Yes? You unutterable ham. Get off the stage so we can get on with the play. You sent me out here. Now go chase yourself. Gildersleeve, if you think I'm going to let you play Cyrano after this performance... Listen, either I play Cyrano next week or I'll sing Chloe right now. <laughs> you beast! Ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you, next week, Frockmorton Gildersleeve in Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> All right, on with the play. <laughs> Every now and then, the great Gildersleeve has an adventure which you folks seem to enjoy so much that you tell us we'd like to hear it again. So we're devoting these last weeks of our season to recalling some of the great man's early escapades. That's right. We'll have another one next week, so be sure to listen in. <laughs> Good night, folks. Now, a wonderful help in menu planning. It's Pabstet, the delicious cheddar cheese food that's so nourishing, so easy to digest, so easy to serve in a hundred appetizing ways. Pabstet spreads, slices, toasts to perfection for sandwiches and snacks. And Pabstet melts smoothly into a luscious golden cheese sauce. You can pour over tasty dishes of macaroni, eggs, and fish. Yes, there are a hundred delightful ways to enjoy Pabstet's rich, mellow cheddar cheese flavor. So buy both varieties of this delicious cheese food, Golden Cheddar Pabstet 
and pimento pabstet. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. From June the 2nd, 1946, the great Gildersleeve. And uh, we'll talk more about the great Gildersleeve in the weeks ahead because we will play more of these great episodes. It really was a good show, and I have a whole file full of these shows. And many of them are in very, very good sound quality. So if uh, if you like the great Gildersleeve, send me a note, bob at boomerboulevard.com. And I will make sure that, that we play many of the ones that I have in my file. One thing quickly, I was fascinated by that ad at the end for Pabst et Cheese. Have you ever heard of Pabst et Cheese? It's Pabst, P-A-B-S-T, just like Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, dash et, E-T-T. Well, I had never heard of it, and I thought, I'm going to find out about this. So I looked it up. And I found this most fascinating blog. Uh, the blog is vintagerecipeblog.com. And the author is B.R. Spiritus. Now, I wish I had a better name than that, like, you know, Beverly or Bob or Ben or Barbara, whatever. But it, it, it's B.R. Spiritus. This individual or these individuals go into a whole lot of nostalgia when it comes to recipes and food items. Fascinating. Look at it. VintageRecipeBlog.com. Now, I'm going to paraphrase what they had to say about um, this cheese because it, I, I, found it, I found it fascinating. It says, now here's a cheese with an interesting history. I agree. With a name like Pabst Et, it obviously had ties to the Pabst Brewing Company. Well, it ends up with the advent of Prohibition in 1920, the Pabst Brewing Company decided to get into the cheese business. The dairy itself was located west of Milwaukee, of course, Wisconsin being the dairy state, and Pabst used its former ice cellars in the brewery to age the cheese. One of the products they made was called Pabst Et. It was a processed whey cheese similar to Velveeta, but more spreadable. And then they make the comment, I think the product was more akin to the cheddar cheese spreads that come in the little crocks nowadays than to actual Velveeta. The cheese business was wildly successful for Pabst and ultimately brought Pabst and Kraft into a confrontation with one another over copyright infringement. After Prohibition ended in 1933, Papp sold the cheese business off to uh, Kraft Foods, who continued to produce Pabst et cheese until at least the late 1940s. Isn't that fascinating? It said in an ad from the very late 20s, the main selling point seems to be that this cheese was digestible. For some weird reason, this was a major talking point for fruit, uh, for food products from that time period. Well, in doing some research about the vintage diet, it seems that people suffered from stomach ailments in the 20s on a more or less regular basis and blamed it on indigestible food. Chances are they didn't have enough fiber in their food. So isn't that interesting? And here we had an ad for this in 1946, Pabst et Cheese. And I had never heard of that before. Where would we be without our senses? Unable to appreciate the true wonder of cheese. That's where 
You've heard of Stinking Bishop. Well, feast your senses on Stinking Archbishop. for a slice, Gromit? Oh, well, no accounting for taste. That was a clip from Wallace and Gromit. Those great cartoon uh, stop-action films. <laughs> Remember how he loved cheese. Just loved cheese. Here's the Drifters and Save the Last Dance for me. You can dance Every dance with the guy who gives you the eye to let him hold you tight You can smile, every smile for the man who held your hand neath the pale moonlight But don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be So darling, say the last dance for me Oh, I know, oh, I know that the music's yes, fine like sparkling oh, wine. Go and have your yes, fun. I know. Oh, I know. Laugh and sing. Yes, I know. But while we're oh, apart, don't give your yes, heart to anyone. Oh, but yes, don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're gonna be. So, darling, say the last dance for me. Don't you know I love you so? Can't you feel it when we touch? I will never, never let you go. I love you oh so much. You can dance, you can dance. Go and carry you on dance. till the night is you gone and it's time to you go. Dance. You can dance. If he asks, you can dance. If you're all you alone, can, can he take you, you home? Dance. You must tell him you no. Cause don't forget who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So darling, say the last dance for me Cause don't forget who's taking you home And in whose arms you're gonna be So darling, say the last dance for me mm, Say the last dance for me You know, I guess there isn't a man, a woman, or a child alive today who isn't familiar with the famous jungle trio, Tarzan, Jane, and Boy. We found out they still live a quiet life in the jungle that they know and love. And tonight it's quite a thrill for me to be here because we're going to be talking to a member of the original Tarzan family. And I know you'll all recognize him. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to have you meet Tarzan's original son, Boy. Uh, <laughs> boy, uh, me man, uh... We talk. Uh, how you say, welcome. You welcome. <laughs> oh, you speak English. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I... Uh, uh, do you? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I thought we were going to have a language barrier. <laughs> Boy, 
boy. Were, were, was there anybody else in the family? Uh, we were only familiar with you uh, through your movies. I was just wondering if there was. Well, yes, uh, Tarzan and Jane had a little girl. Oh, what was her name? A girl. <laughs> I understand you and Tarzan and Jane still live right here in the jungle. Well, that's correct, yes. We still make our home here. We live in a little place called Alligator Jaw Swamp. <laughs> well, I'll bet that's an adventure in itself. Uh, what with the man-eating alligators lurking in the dark jungle waters? Is that right? Well, I don't know about that. It's a trailer park. Uh, we got lights and everything, water I see, well, as we all know It's been some time since Hollywood discovered your family now, How old are you now, man? Well, uh, I'm 38 And uh, Tarzan is 81 And Felica is 72 Felica? Yes, that's good Oh, uh, well, you didn't know her as Felica You probably knew her as Jane, you uh -huh. see But uh, her real name was Felica, of course When the movie people came in They had to change her name, of course I don't really know why Felica, it's kind of a romantic name well, not really. You see, in Jungle Talk, Felica means trail of the buffalo. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been on a trail of a buffalo after a jungle rain... Uh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, the steam would take the crease right out of your pants. <laughs> you know, I can't help wondering, did the jungle animals really understand what Tarzan was saying? No, no, they never knew what he was saying, no. Well, I don't understand. In the movies, whenever he gave that yell, you know, they'd, they'd come right to him. Yeah, well, uh, they came mostly out of curiosity. I mean, you take a guy out there beating his chest in his underwear, I mean... You're going to raise a crowd, I don't care where you are. Yeah, but they all seemed to... He'd go, or something, you know, and in their language it appeared, and they would all go off as though they knew where they were going and what they were yeah, doing. Yeah, well, uh, they went off, usually, because he was standing in the felica. And like I say, you know, you get a jungle yeah. rain in that felica. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You been on one? Uh, no, I'll just take your word for oh. it. I, Tarzan uh, was a friend of the animals, though, wasn't he? That's correct. Tarzan never killed any of the jungle animals. That's mm -hmm. how he got his famous Tarzan yell. Oh, how was that? Well, uh, when the movie people came in, they insisted that he wear an animal skin, and so mm -hmm. uh, that's how he got the yell. Well, how did he, how did he get the yell? I, I missed the point there somewhere. Well, I mean, did you ever get up in the morning and try and put a live puma on? <laughs> if Tarzan didn't kill any animals that's right w uh, without killing them what did he eat now well he ate uh, what his best friends ate you see the yeah. pumas were his best friends so he ate what they ate puma What's peas puma peas that's right quite a sight to see the uh, pumas down by the pond eating puma peas from the puma pea pods uh, Tarzan eating the pods from the puma peas down by the pond with the pumas were eating with the paws of course Jane just ate jaguar jelly <laughs> You want to know how that's made? Jaguar no, no, it's not necessary. Well, you take the jaw of jaguar and a jigger of jungle juice, and you just no, kind of mix it all. Just forget that. You don't. No, no. Now, I just ate bunko berry butter myself. Now, you used to get about four berries to a bunko. Well, I'm so not interested you know, in that. We sell it at the gift shop. I don't know. If, you know. Well, uh, do you have any advice, boy, for young jungle boys, perhaps? Well, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. My advice is swing. <laughs> And wash your loincloth twice a week. Ernie Anderson and uh, Tim Conway, and that one was the Tarzan family, the interview with Boy. No. Oh. 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 O
as you can tell from the music, it is time for Gunsmoke, everybody. And we have a pretty good episode tonight that was originally broadcast on October the 30th in 1955, and one that's never been played on Boomer Boulevard before. It's called The Choice, and it features Sam Edwards in the uh, main character role, and it's a bit of a morality play, and it raises some good questions. Here it comes. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with him. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Going straight to the bar without even saying hello. Well, I figured you was kindly busy. <laughs> oh, I'm busy telling Andy here about Dodge. Andy, this is Chester Proudfoot. He's one of the people you ought to know. This is Andy Hill, Chester. Pleased to meet you, Chester. Well, sit down. Sit down. Thank you. Chester works for Marshal Dillon, Andy. Well, that ought to be a good job. Oh, it's a fine job. If you like long hours and poor pay. (laughs) (laughs) He spends quite a few of those long hours sitting around the depot waiting for the Santa Fe to come in, Andy. (laughs) Well, I just hope Mr. Dillon will know where I'm at if he wants me for anything. (laughs) (laughs) Your name, Kitty? I'm busy, mister. They told me your name. Now I'm going to buy you a drink. Come on over the bar. Back to your hogs, mister. You're spoiling the air. I'll have no talk from a woman of your kind. All right, you get out of here, mister. Get out. You putting me out? You ain't even armed. Well, I'll find me a gun quick enough. Hey, mister. How about me? I'm armed. You're too young to be wearing a gun. Take it off. You do it. You take it off. I sure will. From there. You want to die, don't you? No. I don't want anybody to die. Now, you get out of here. I'm going to put a bullet in you. You can't do it, mister. Don't try it. I'll show you. Oh. 
I told him he couldn't do it. Wait, you killed him, Andy. He was looking for a fight. I don't even know who he is. I've never seen him before. Well, there's Matt. Who? Marshal Dillon, Andy. Oh. Did you kill this man? I did it. It was self-defense, Matt. Andy had to shoot him. That's the truth, Mr. Dillon. That man was treating this kitty awful bad, and I didn't have no gun, and Andy stood up to him. Get some help and carry him out of here, Chester. Yes, sir. A couple of you men, give me a hand here. Kitty, let's step over here. You and Andy, is it? Andy Hill, Marshal. You should have seen it, Matt. That man had his gun almost out before Andy even started to draw. So you're pretty fast, huh, Andy? I'm alive. Where are you from? I told you my name. It don't matter where I'm from. What are you doing in Dodge? Marshal, I come here looking for a job, an honest job. He told me the same thing, Matt. I believe him. Why would I be lying? Well, the way Kitty described it, you're mighty handy with a gun for a man who's looking for an honest job. All right, I'll move on. I wouldn't have a chance here with you against me. Matt. Don't worry about it, Miss Kitty. I'll make out someplace else. Wait a minute, Andy. Yeah? Go over to the stage office. That's for Jim Buck. What for? He's a driver. He's looking for a man to ride shotgun. Tell him I sent you. Thanks, Marshal. I'll go over right away. So long. You see, Matt? He did mean it. Yeah, he wants a job, all right. But he's hiding something, Kitty. When a man hides something, it's usually bad. But I got a feeling about him, Matt. I think he's all right. Well, I hope so, Kitty. Won't be so good if I recommended an outlaw to protect the stage. I didn't see Andy again that night, but I ran into Jim Buck. And he told me that he'd hired him and that they were leaving for Hayes City the next morning. It was two days before they were due back, before I'd find out if I'd made a mistake or not. And I waited. In the evening they were due, I was over at the stage office. Of course, the stage was late, over an hour late. But it finally came. And Andy was up on the box next to Jim. They pulled up and Jim jumped down and ran over to me. Marshal? Marshal, you arrest him. Arrest who? Andy Hill, that's who. If I hadn't heard how good he is with a gun, I'd have taken him myself. I'd have shot him dead. Now, wait a minute, Jim. What's the trouble? He's mad at me, Marshal. Mad at you? You ought to be tarred and feathered. Why don't one of you tell me what this is all about? We was held up, Marshal. Held up by heaven, and this so-called shotgun man sat there like an owl on a rafter. Sat there and did nothing. Is that true, Andy? Why kill a man for nothing, Marshal? For nothing? The treasure box was empty and we carried no passengers this trip. He didn't get a thing. You didn't know that box was empty till I told you afterwards. I knew it before we left Hayes City, Jim. I figured I ought to know what I was guarding, so I found out. Sure. And for all I know, you was in cahoots with that bandit. Maybe you and him were partners. There's no proof of that, Jim. Well, I ain't hiring a man who won't fight. You're fired, Andy. I never want to see you again. I'm sorry, Marshal. I guess I've disappointed you. Because you didn't want to kill a man for nothing. That's right. There, uh, wasn't any other reason, was there, Andy? You think I was in on it, too? I didn't say that. Good night, Marshal. Andy. Andy. Yeah, maybe I did make a mistake. <laughs> 
I wasn't sure about Andy that night, but the next few days changed my mind again. He went all over town looking for a job. He tried everybody and everything, but nothing came of it. And finally, I heard that he got discouraged and quit trying. I had a long talk with Jim Buck, and at the end, he said he was sorry he'd lost his temper. But he still wouldn't rehire Andy. And that was that. Until one night about a week later, Doc and I were having a beer over at the Texas Trailer. From what I've seen of him, Mac, Andy's got a lot of pride. Maybe too much pride, Doc. No, he's young. He's feeling his blood. <laughs> oh, my, we were all like that once. Now, there's more to it than that. Well, what? I don't know, Doc. Andy doesn't talk much, especially to me. Well, maybe he doesn't trust the law. Well, most people around here don't. Yep. Get away from Andy. Now what? That's uh, Andy. He's drunk. Who's that following you? Who is that, man? I'm trying to think, Doc. I've seen his face. Maybe it was his picture. I said I don't want to drink with you. No drink. Oh, there's going to be a fight, man. Yeah, stick around, Doc. We may need you. man won't drink with Take it any way you like. Andy, I could kill you. You know, you're drunk. Right. Hold it, Andy. Stay out of this, Marshal. He's right. You're too drunk to fight. Am I? Watch me. No. Hey. What'd you do that for, Marshal? To keep you from killing him, Carrick. Know my name? I heard Andy say it, but I don't want to hear it again. And I don't want to see you again. You find your horse and you ride him out of town, Carrick, and you keep on riding him. Now you get moving while you got a chance. Hmm. Now, Chester... You should have arrested him, Mr. Dillon. He started the whole trouble. Yeah, maybe. But right now, get Andy's gun and take him to jail. He can sleep it off there. That's right, I will. Well, you didn't need me after all, man. Doc, that's the first time I ever turned an outlaw loose. What's that? Carrick. I saw his picture the other day on some new circlers. The law in Oklahoma Territory would like to have him back. Well, then why didn't you arrest him? Andy's wanted with him. There's no picture, but I remember the description now. Carrick for murder, Andy for robbery. They were partners. You let a murderer go? No, not exactly, Doc. Carrick needs Andy for a partner. That's why he came here. And that's why he'll come back. If he comes back, you're going to have two outlaws to deal with. Yeah, maybe. But it's Andy who's going to have to decide that. He's still got a choice to make, Doc. All I'm doing is giving him the chance to make it. Why should you risk facing a pack of trouble to help a man you hardly know, man? Yeah, a man who hardly knew me went out of his way once, Doc. Maybe I'm kind of paying him back. Oh. Well, I still say you... You must have a lot of faith in Andy. No, not a lot, Doc. Just enough to take a gamble. The 
next morning, it looked like a bad gamble. Andy came out of his cell, sullen and angry. And when I gave him his gun back, he took it and left without a word. Later, Chester reported that he'd ridden out of town. And it was several days before I heard of him again. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? Andy Hill's back in town. Oh? Jim Buck told me. Well, how does Jim Buck know? He's standing out there on the boardwalk talking to him. I went up and said hello to him, and you know what Jim told me? He's gone and hired Andy to ride shotgun for him again. He has? Yes, he has. He was kindly laughing about it. He said Andy spent most of the morning arguing him into it. Said anybody who could talk that good and that long deserved a job. <laughs> I guess he ain't mad at Andy no more, huh? Chester, Jim's bringing a shipment of gold back from Hayes City next trip. Hmm. You're thinking maybe Andy knows about it. Him and Carrick both. Yeah, maybe. What's that? It's a circular from Oklahoma with Carrick's picture on it and Andy's description. Well, what are you going to do with it? I'll be back directly. What do you want, Marshal? Where's Jim Buck? He went over to the stage office. I hear you're riding shotgun for him again. Any objections, Marshal? Andy, if I had everything on my mind the way you have, I don't think I'd be friendly with the law either. What do you mean by that? Here, take a look at this. Hmm? Now, wait a minute, Andy. I didn't come to arrest you, so don't make me kill you. What? I wanted you to see that circular. I didn't think you and Carrick knew it was out. I don't understand you, Marshal. It was Carrick who held up the stage last time when you were riding shotgun. Wasn't it? It had nothing to do with me. I didn't know he was in the country. But you didn't shoot because you didn't want to kill a man for nothing, especially a former partner, huh? Okay, Marshal. I think your partner's again, Andy. I think you got this one planned. You won't take me alive, Mark. I told you I didn't come here to arrest you. Why not? Because I think a man who wants it deserves a chance, Andy. You haven't had yours. Not yet. Well, maybe I'm wrong giving it to you, but I'm going to do it. What do you mean? The stage goes to Hayes tomorrow. It'll be back Thursday. I'm going to be waiting for it, Andy. Waiting real hard. Should have been here an hour ago, Mr. Dillon. It's already dark. That's often late, Chester. Why did it have to be late this time? Are you worried? Yes, sir. And so are you. Well, it's like putting your whole stake on one turn of the card. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon? Yeah. It made it. The stage made it. Yeah, the stage did, Chester. But there's no shotgun messenger. Oh, my golly, you're right. Where's Andy? Oh! Oh! 
Where's Andy, Jim? I don't know where he is. I ain't seen him since we got to Hayes. You mean he quit, Jim? I'd call it that. Well, did he tell you he was quitting? He told me nothing. He just disappeared. Serves me right for hiring him again. I got work to do. Well, I guess he figured he'd get as far as Hayes without you after him, and then him and Carrie could run from there. What are you looking at? That rider coming up the street. Yes, sir. Leading that pack horse? Not a pack horse. There's a body tied across the saddle, and that's Andy leading it. I know you're right. Now what's he gone and done? Well, we'll ask him. Hello, Marshal. Hello, Andy. That's Carrick I got there, Marshal. You kill him? I killed him. No witnesses. No way to prove who drew first. Jim Buck told me you ran off up in Hayes City. Jim might have got shot if I hadn't. Oh? Carrick was going to hold up the stage again, Marshal, and I decided not to let him do it. But I figured if I tried to fight him while I was sitting up there next to Jim, it'd go bad. So you rode back to meet Carrick alone, huh? Yeah. I left the night we got the haze. I found him and told him I was through for good. He got scared and went for his gun. But, like I say, I can't prove it was self-defense. Maybe I shouldn't have come back. Nobody's going to believe an outlaw. Chester. Yes, sir? Give Andy a hand with Carrick's body. I got some work to do. Where are you going? I'm going to write to the law in Oklahoma Territory. I'm going to let them know they can withdraw that wanted circular on Carrick. But what about Andy and that robbery charge? After I tell them how he brought in Carrick and how hard he's trying to go straight, I think they won't be too hard on him. the frontier, there were all kinds. Buffalo hunters, trail drivers, spoilers, saddle bums. And there were lawmen, good and bad. Well, our story next week concerns a lawman's death. Until then, good night. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Harry Bartell, Barney Phillips, and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Listen to another transcribed story of the Old West on Gunsmoke next week at this same time.
where they could make you think on Gunsmoke, couldn't they? A lot of a uh, lot of questions, uh, morality questions that would be raised and had to be sorted out under not the most favorable conditions in the Old West. That one was originally broadcast on October 30th, 1955. That was entitled The Choice. And interestingly enough, the very next week, the name of the episode was The Second Choice. And we may play that next time on our live show in Boomer Boulevard in two weeks. I wake up in the morning in a state of fright On the wrong side of the bed all night Clinging to the broken heart inside my head Open my eyes and I move my hands From round her pillow to the nightstand And straighten Miss Emily's picture by my bed Go to the office, the work's piled up Pour three fingers bourbon in my coffee cup And cry on my best friend's shoulder down the hall Feel so lonely when I close the door Bite my nails and I walk the floor And straighten Miss Emily's picture on my wall And what do I see? Nothing but pain looking back at me All that my future means to me Is tossing yesterday's love out into the wind And straighten Miss Emily's picture now and my office and I go downtown to a little bar we all hang around laugh drink beer and shoot pool and have a ball when the laughter stops and the hurting takes hold reach in my pocket for my billfold and show Miss Emily's picture to them all Stagger in the house and I slam the door Scatter my clothes all over the floor Wishing I could do the same thing in my head Drink a beer and I eat a bite and Just before I turn out the light Straighten Miss Emily's picture by my bed Look out my window and what do I see? Nothing but pain looking back at me. All that my future means to me is tossing yesterday's love out into the wind. And straighten Miss Emily's picture now and
That was John Conley and Miss Emily's picture. Well, Chester is giving me the signal that it's time to gather up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. All right, we're going to go out tonight with a little Boots Randolph. This is Bob Bro, and I am so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. (laughs) 